Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Welcome to the flagship episode of the Living Church Podcast. My name is Amber Noel, and I'm the Associate Director of the Living Church Institute and one of the editors here at the magazine. If you're not familiar with the Living Church Institute, we are the educational ministry of the Living Church Foundation. If you read the magazine or our Covenant blog, or if you follow us on social media, you might have seen ads for some of our conferences that we co-host with parishes or pilgrimages we've done with seminaries. We are traveling, we're speaking, we're teaching, writing, consulting, and hosting ecumenical conversations, which we love. We're also publishing materials for the parish, including, you may have seen these, our old school, really cool, substantive pamphlets on theological questions and hot topics. The one on creation, I cried while I read it, it got real. And we've got a diverse group of worldwide leaders behind it all, mostly volunteers, doing the passionate, creative, grassroots work of communication and communion our church needs so much of today. Well, actually, this is the work the church always needs. And the vocation of the Living Church Institute, TLCI, is to encourage and equip lay leaders and clergy to do it. So why have we started a podcast? Doesn't everybody have a podcast? We needed one. Well, partly. We were already feeling the stirrings of a podcast, wanting to do something new with media before two weeks ago, before COVID-19 became a pandemic. And now we are all having to think freshly about how to be disciples and ministers during this time and how to just honestly, how to just live our lives. And then we thought, you know what? Now is the time. And the emails started flying. So ready or not, we were ready. 
In the spirit of getting some helpful resources to your ears as soon as we can, and in the realities of working from home, you will hear some less than perfect audio quality sometimes. You might hear the occasional ping of a cell phone or an infant in the background. I myself live with a one-year-old. Some things will be moving and changing as we get this right, but we hope, above all, that you will find these 30-minute or less episodes worth your time because we are excited to think how much they'll be worth ours. So what will these episodes look like? What will you get when you tune in? That may change over time, but right now we're focusing on meeting you where you're at. Probably that means in your house, trying to work, trying to be faithful, trying to pastor a church, run a diocese, trying to stay human, maybe become a little more human, a little more holy, who knows? So we're asking special guests to join us for conversations on topics like liturgy, prayer, and COVID-19, reflecting theologically on the current crisis, mental health care for people stuck at home, worship across the communion. What does it look like right now in Pittsburgh? What does it look like in Kenya? What is the state of the arts and artists? What are practical methods of pastoral leadership in a time of quarantine? And our conversation partners are going to include our covenant blog authors from around the communion, around the globe, bishops, priests, theologians, teachers, artists, and faithful, talented lay people. We're also asking the more dramatically inclined among us to record clips of classic Christian texts to be a challenge and a comfort to us, sort of like mini audiobooks, excerpts from people like C.S. Lewis. Julian of Norwich, John Donne, and Martin Luther. We're also asking for music, for lessons for kids and teens. It's a creative time around here. If there's anything you're going to get on this podcast, it probably won't be the same thing twice. So hold on to your BCPs. We're Catholic, we're evangelical, we're ecumenical, and now we're a podcast. Our first episode is an audio dispatch from the Episcopal Bishop of Springfield, the Right Reverend Dan Martins. Jumping off of the widespread cancellation of public worship, Bishop Dan reflects on the meaning of the Eucharist. When we say we're canceling worship, what is worship? Is that something that we can do at home in our pajamas? We we might have to do that for many Sundays. But what is worship more broadly conceived, and what is it that we specifically do when we gather, when we assemble? What is it that we miss when we don't, when we can't? And what do we do now? Hi, I'm Bishop Daniel Martins of the Diocese of Springfield, which covers about two-thirds of the state of Illinois in the central and southern parts of the state. This is a completely strange experience that we're walking through, isn't it? I'm 68 years old and before last week would never 
have imagined that there would be a serious conversation about canceling Sunday church services as a result of a public health crisis. It's just astonishing, stunning. But that's exactly what's happening. And it is, of course, more than a conversation. It's a reality. All the dioceses around my own are on Sunday lockdown, and I've given permission for my own parishes to do the same if the leaders at a local level believe it's the wisest course. I haven't yet decided to do so diocese-wide, but I've just canceled our chrism mass a little more than two weeks away, and I've put folks on notice that our observance of Holy Week and Easter may be in jeopardy. But just what what is it actually that, that we're canceling? At the broadest level, the term we hear most often is that we're canceling public worship. That is, congregations getting together in a specific place at a stated time that's widely publicized on Sunday morning with the doors open to the public. Now, there are a number of moving parts in that description, some of which I might come back to soon. But first, we need to go down one level deeper and make a distinction between worship, generically conceived, and the particular species of worship that is um, normative among churches that sit in the Catholic sacramental liturgical stream of the Christian tradition, namely the celebration of the Eucharist. For such churches, the cancellation of public worship on Sunday is also the cancellation of the Eucharist. The two are obviously related, but they're not the same thing. The 1979 prayer book says that the Eucharist is the principal act of Christian worship on the Lord's Day. But why is this? Why does the Eucharist enjoy such a privileged position among Catholic Christians? Let's unpack that. I think it's safe to say that most people, when they start thinking about the Eucharist, first go immediately to the experience of actually receiving the sacrament, receiving Holy Communion. And that's completely understandable and wholly appropriate. Jesus says in John's Gospel, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's pretty serious. In receiving the body and blood of our Lord Jesus, God is feeding us with his own deathless life. God who has life in himself. Again, this is a language that Jesus uses in John's gospel. God, who has life in himself, shares that life with us who have no life in ourselves, whose lives are dependent from one second to the next on on God willing us to remain alive. The reception of Holy Communion is a vital part of one's Christian experience, so much so that in the Anglican tradition, it's been called generally necessary to salvation, right up there on a par with baptism. But as they used to say on late night television commercials, but wait, there's more. As huge a deal as it is to receive the sacrament, the process of 
getting to that point turns out to be just as important and just as incredibly rich. The Eucharist is the corporate collective action of the gathered community of baptized Christians to participate together in what we call the Paschal Mystery. So what is this Paschal Mystery, you ask? The answer to that question is at the same time simple and inexhaustible. So I'll give you the simple version because the the inexhaustible part is, in addition to being inexhaustible, it, it's also kind of mystical and hard to put into words. But the simple version is this. The Paschal Mystery is the long project of God to save the human race from the power of sin and death. We hear about it as early as the book of Genesis, as Adam and Eve are being banished from the Garden of Eden, and the Lord makes a cryptic promise that a descendant of the woman will crush the head of a descendant of the serpent, presumed, of course, to be Satan, who first beguiled humankind into sin. We follow God's saving plan through the covenant he made with Noah to never again destroy the world by water, the covenant he made with Abraham to make him the father of a great nation, the covenant he made with David that the savior of the human race would come through his lineage. But the Paschal mystery comes into full focus in Jesus. Jesus enters the world as God made flesh. He lives the first truly human life, oriented completely and unfailingly toward the will of God. Human life as it was intended in creation. Then he lays down that life on the cross, absorbing into himself the full weight, the full burden of human sin, and taking that burden to the grave with him and leaving it there. He swallows up death by death, the way a, a snake might swallow its own tail and choke itself to death. He rises gloriously from the dead, giving us a sneak preview of the kind of life that awaits those who are united with him in faith. He returns to the eternal realm from whence he came, only this time taking our humanity with him. And he sends his Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. This all wrapped together, and I forgot to mention it when I was listing the covenants, the covenants the covenant with Moses, that's actually the probably the most important one because the delivery of uh, Israel through the waters of the Red Sea is the most uh, evident precursor of uh, the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. So all of this wrapped together is the Paschal mystery. In baptism, each of us individually uh, were united with him in this mystery. Our death becomes his, that is Jesus's, and he does away with it as a defining reality for our lives. His life becomes ours, and we are transformed into his image from glory to glory. In the Eucharist, all of us together 
who have been baptized into Christ form the very people of God, a holy nation, as St. Peter describes it in his first epistle. And every time we come together for the Eucharist, we are renewed in that collective identity. The church is perpetually reconstituted in the celebration of the Eucharist. We use the language in our liturgy of remembrance, but in this instance, it's not the sort of remembrance that is the opposite of forgetting, but the sort of remembrance that is the opposite of dismembering. We who are dismembered by our participation in sin are remembered as the body of Christ when we assemble for Eucharistic worship. But the Eucharist not only constitutes the church, the Eucharist is the vehicle by which the church most powerfully engages its vital ministry of intercession for the life of the world. St. Peter not only calls us a holy nation, but also a royal priesthood. Together we are a priestly people, and the function of a priest is to be interposed between the people and their God, to, to speak to God on behalf of the people of the world and their needs. In effect, we are pleading Christ for the sins of the world. We, we say to God, Father, look on us not as we are in our sins, but as we are becoming in your Son, Jesus. When the celebrant at Mass elevates the bread and the wine right after the words of institution and again at the conclusion of the Eucharistic prayer, these are the moments when we can remind ourselves of this essential Eucharistic action of intercession, of enveloping the needs of the world into the grace and mercy of the Paschal Mystery. So, in this time of rampant, infectious disease pandemic, what does it mean when many, and perhaps eventually most or all, churches are keeping their doors locked on Sunday mornings? For those in Christian traditions where the Eucharist is not seen as such an essential element of the church's identity. It, it means the loss of an ability to come together for corporate worship, which is no trifling matter in itself. But for those in the Catholic stream, it means being deprived of our very identity, of that which makes us what and who we are. So it's more than an inconvenience or an annoyance. It's a, it's a temporary existential threat. I have two observations to make, and then a call to some creativity. First, it's possible to celebrate the Eucharist apart from an occasion of public worship. Now, it, it may sound kind of weird to, to hear me say this, but the great thing about the Eucharist is that it can be celebrated in a great cathedral with splendid ceremonial and music, and it can be celebrated in great simplicity with only a handful of people present. In, in the Anglican tradition, all that's required is a priest and one other person. One does not have any more meaning or significance than the other. During this time of restriction in public worship, my hope is that there will be multiple celebrations of the Eucharist 
in our churches, particularly on Sundays. Uh, celebrations of this second sort, quiet, simple, not, not open to the public. Whether it's just the priest and an acolyte or a couple of members of the altar guild or whatever, the important thing is that the church is still constituted, remembered yet again. The church is still faithful in her vital ministry of interceding, of pleading Christ for the life of the world. When is that ever more important than during a pandemic? But that doesn't address the need, indeed the hunger, of the people of God to be fed regularly in word and sacrament, which leads me to my second observation. Thanks to the uh, rise of technology in recent years, the word part of that equation, word and sacrament, is easily addressed in most cases. The liturgy can be live-streamed, it can be recorded, there's an abundance of resources for people to pray formally together at home. A good pastor will explore these options, and they are important. What then of the sacrament half of word and sacrament? Let me share a personal anecdote about this. When I walked the historic pilgrimage route across northern Spain in 2016, the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, there were no Anglican churches along my way. I was able to attend Sunday Mass and participated in the worship with heart and mind as best I could in a language not my own. But in those Roman Catholic contexts, I was not welcome, of course, to receive Holy Communion. So I engaged in an ancient and venerable practice known as spiritual communion, intense contemplation of the sacramental presence of Christ with a heartfelt desire to be fed by Christ, as the other members of the congregation were receiving. At first, I gotta say, it was a little annoying. But over time, that moment of spiritual communion became quite precious to me, an intimate time of spiritual refreshment. So while walking the Camino, I fasted from Holy Communion for six weeks. In the end, I believe I not only survived, but thrived spiritually. I hope my experience is of some comfort for those who are on a, on a Eucharistic fast that's been imposed on them, deprived of the sacrament during this extraordinary season. My friends, we will get through this. We will be changed in ways we cannot now predict. In the meantime, we have an opportunity to be creative in ways that we might never have considered. I, I read today of a church in Texas that's celebrating the Eucharist twice a day for a small group of eight people who have RSVP'd for the occasion and who will be placed seven feet apart. These services are live-streamed, so those unable to attend can participate at some level. Same parish is offering Holy Communion from the Reserved Sacrament via drive through I'm sure there are other equally creative adaptations of the Church's Eucharistic ministry out there that I'm not even aware of. By being there for one another, we can certainly survive this. We may even thrive.
Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning covenant blog, livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.